We want to be able to move through the domains quicker than they can react to them. Say, I'm going to give you a land problem, but before you figure out a way to deal with the land problem, I'm going to give you a cyber problem. Then before you figure a way to mitigate that, I'm going to give you a space problem. So we're going to move between the domains as quickly as we move through the domains. And that becomes a very difficult thing to defend against. So what Air Land Battle did, if you read through 100-5, it talked about synchronizing. There's an air solution, a land solution, a maneuver solution, a fire solution. For the future, what we're going to say is that's too late. It takes too long to synchronize. The enemy is going to outmaneuver us. They will outdecide us. I have to, from the very beginning, have a converged solution. And now I have to build staffs and services that start from a converged point of view. So when I was growing up, if you had the, a new tank and you wanted the blueprints for a tank, you'd have to do like a Mission Impossible thing, sneak in somewhere, steal the blueprints and all that. Nowadays, you can steal it on a thumb drive. So technology is the most transferable of our capabilities. Leadership, discipline, training, you can't hack into that. You can't put it on a thumb drive. You actually have to build that. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI. In this episode, I talk to General David Perkins. General Perkins is the commander of the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command. In that capacity, among his many areas of responsibility, is playing an important leadership role in the development of the multi-domain battle concept. According to this framework, victory in future military conflicts will require an ability to bring decisive power to bear across multiple domains air, land, and sea, but also space and cyberspace. But what will this look like in practice? What will it mean for the way we structure combat units? How will it change the way we train and equip for war? There's nobody better situated to address these and a range of other fascinating and sometimes difficult questions about multi-domain battle than General Perkins. Before we get to the conversation, just a couple quick things. First, be sure to follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It's the best way to keep up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, research, and more that we publish every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with General David Perkins. General Perkins, thanks very much for for sitting down and talking to us about um, what I think is, I'm sure, what everybody wants to talk to you about these days, which is multi-domain battle. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if if you can kind of, um, I think most listeners will be familiar with it, but if you can, and if there is if there is such a thing, give kind of the 30-second elevator pitch for multi-domain battle. Yeah, so the reason we've developed it is we've looked out at our adversaries around the world. We found that just trying to go at them technology by technology, tank on tank, airplane on airplane, that's, there's, a, there's a limiting factor to that. It becomes sort of an arms race in and of itself. And um, you're chasing all kinds of specific technologies and you sort of have to have the upper hand in each one. So what we decided is it's not any one technology or any one system. What we want to be able to do better than anybody else is bring everything together in a way that nobody else can for two reasons. One, everything has some <clears throat> you know, Achilles heel associated with it. So if, if you can bring air, maritime, uh, space, cyber together, one weakness can be offset by another strength. The other aspect of it is 
it becomes very difficult for the enemy to plan for that and react to it. Because if you only give them one dilemma, like, okay, a tank, I get that. If I can figure a way to defeat that tank, because it's, it's not perfect, it's got to have a weak link in it somewhere, then now I've defeated that dilemma. But if you say, you know what, I have multiple dilemmas. You have an enemy tank, I can defeat it with a tank. I can go after it with cyber, maybe to disarm the control system. Maybe I can go at it with electronic warfare. Maybe there's some space weapon, uh, obviously air, maritime. And so it's very difficult for the enemy to mitigate all of those dilemmas. And we want to be able to move through the domains quicker than they can react to them. Say, I'm going to give you a land problem, but before you figure out a way to deal with the land problem, I'm going to give you a cyber problem. Then before you figure a way to mitigate that, I'm going to give you a space problem. So we're going to move between the domains as quickly as we move through the domains. And that becomes a very difficult thing to defend against. You've described uh, the difference between concept and doctrine. Doctrine is the way that we operate. The concept is the way that we expect to operate as in the future. MDB right now is in that concept stage. Correct. What is the timeline and the process? Are we? Uh, what's the process, first of all, uh, that it'll get to be doctrine? And what's the timeline when we're talking about that future battlefield? Is that five years, right. 20 years? In many ways, parts of it are here now. So when we have a concept, then we develop a capability, which is a combination of .mil, .pf, uh, portions of it, doctrine, organization, training, leader development, material, personnel, facilities. And so what we do is we have the concept, <clears throat> and then we start working a .mil, .pf solution to it. And generally, one of the first things you do is you stop at D, the doctrine. So the multi-domain concept came out in October of 16. And this year, now October of 17, we published Field Manual 3.0 Operations, which is the Army's capstone manual, warfighting manual. And we've taken elements of multi-domain battle that we think we can execute now and have put them in doctrine, FM 3.0, with regards to what do echelons above brigade do, our battlefield framework, how you organize the battlefield and time and space. And so what you normally see, just like we did with the airlane battle when I was growing up, it becomes a continual evolution. It's not just one thing. So you you have a concept and then you we put out FM 100-5 when I was in the Army, operations, airlane battle. Then you say, well, now I need a tank. So you produce an M1, I need a new helicopter, you produce an Apache, MRS, Bradleys. And so what happens is you start this sort of wave effect through .mil PF you say, okay, doctrine, organization, we're already looking at right now. In fact, I have a meeting tomorrow with the Force Comm Commander and the AMC Commander at relooking our organizations. Do we design our brigades differently? Do we have different types of brigades? Do we have more of them? And you have doctrine, then you, so you take a look at your organizational construct. We already are training leaders differently. So training and leader development, TNL. We're already making sure that when you go to the NTC, you operate in a contested cyber environment. So when I went there, there, it was, there was no cyber. You had opposing forces who had T-72s and BMPs. You now have an opposing force that has cyber weapons, and they try to shut down your network. So <clears throat> we constantly evolve pieces of it that are not the practical level into our training, leader development, materiel. And so now, since we are developing cyber capability to attack the network, we are now having to develop cyber capability to protect the network, new tools to protect the network. Then we have to train people. We just stood up cyber as a branch as part of really the organization of our army. We created a whole new branch. We don't do that very often. The last branch we created uh, was Special Forces. I believe that was 1985. So like every 30 years, we create a branch. So one of the changes we've made in the organization of the army is create a cyber branch because that's a domain. And now we train and develop leaders, TNL, in that domain.
you talked about cyber, and I think most people would intuitively expect cyber to be sort of the major limiting factor right now. But if you're talking across the dot mil PF spectrum, uh, what would you say, you know, organizationally, those are things that we can change. We can start, it's going to take time, but is it, techno is it technology? What are the, what's the major limiting factor to implementation of MDB? So there's two big challenges we're working at right now. And one is, <clears throat> as you bring these domains together, you have what's called the battlefield framework. It's kind of your intellectual ge geometry of how you array things in time and space. What that does is allows you to understand the roles and responsibilities of various echelons, <clears throat> and for that matter, various services. So in air land battle, we had close, deep, and rear. And what that did, okay, now we're gonna have a deep fight. Now we're gonna engage uncommitted echelons. Now we need MLRS. Now we need an attack aviation unit. Now we need a headquarters to conduct deep battle. So now we need a core. We need a core with attack aviation, core artillery. So you had a battlefield framework. Then you have a headquarters that deals with that part of the framework, deep fight. Then you have materiel. Then you have doctrine for deep battle uh, or um, deep ops, et cetera, like that. So if you don't have a battlefield framework, it's hard to go much beyond that. So we, <clears throat> we uh, put one together. It's, it's much more complex than close, deep, and rear. It goes from you know, your, your original home station port, whether it's Fort Riley or whatever, <clears throat> to maybe your enemy's nation's capital. Because when you take a look at cyber, uh, it, it is ubiquitous. There's no max effective range of cyber. And so you can affect all of that. Um, what we're doing now is we're working with the Air Force and the Navy on maritime and air to say, what is the battlefield framework that works in their domain? Because it's a little bit different because Air Forces are aligned functionally, whereas the Army is aligned echelonment. Army is a very echelon force, squads, company, battalions, brigades, divisions, stuff like that. The Air Force is not because you can have one jet that starts here, flies hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles an hour, can do... Uh, close air support, air addiction, ISR does multiple functions over multiple echelons of the Army. So now we're working with the Air Force to develop a battlefield framework of a functional aspect in the air with an echelon aspect on land. So we've got to get the battlefield framework right, our intellectual construct of the battlefield, so we can apportion headquarters and develop capabilities. And then one of the other things associated with that is going to be the network that ties it all together. So what is the network so that you can execute command and control so you can conduct mission command? And so what is the backbone of that? What is the framework? How can you make sure that folks on land can talk to the air guys and the maritime? And, and how do you work all that aspect of it? So those are the probably the two big things we're focusing a lot of effort right on right now is the battlefield framework and the network. You mentioned uh, sort of some kind of conceptual differences between the Army and sister services. You, you specifically mentioned the Air Force. What mm. about cultural differences? And to what Thanks. extent do, do those pose obstacles that need to be overcome when implementing this yeah. very joint endeavor? I, I don't, you know, so I work with the senior leaders of the Air Force, the Navy and Marine Corps, the Commandant and CNO and Chief Staff of the Air Force, the secretaries of those. Honestly, I, I don't see culture as a major issue. The biggest challenge we have is, for one, it becomes the physics of the domain. The physics of air is very different than the physics of land. The rate of movement, uh, the areas that you traverse, the homogeneity of those other domains. The maritime domain is pretty homogeneous. I mean, it's pretty flat because <laughs> there's water. And so it's interesting as we look to the Navy, they have radar that they use to look for ships on the water. 
We're like, well, kind of on their AWACS version. We're like, could we put that in Air Force AWACS and look for moving target indicators on land? The problem is their radar is optimized for the ocean, which is very flat. And then a ship really stands out, so it's a big differentiation. When you use that same radar, because it wasn't designed, and go over land, there's all kinds of clutter on land. There's trees, there's valley, there's hills, there's roads. And so it can't differentiate between a person, a tree, et cetera, like that. So we're working with them to say, can we get filters or technical capability that maybe we can have sort of one type of radar that does this, you know, ISR, intelligence preparation, the battlefield, moving target indicators that works on, on all of those domains, even though that literally the physics of them are different. So now you have to look for a technical solution to deal with the lack of homogeneity of the domains. So I think that becomes a bigger challenge than the culture. The culture... Uh, they're all professionals. We'll work through that. I think sometimes people confuse a difference in culture with a difference in function and focus and the difference of physics of their problem set. You mentioned Airland Battle, and Airland Battle, you know, its genesis was closely tied to the Yom Kippur War of right. 1973. Mm-hmm. Are there similar um, sort of key conflicts or, or key things that you've looked at in recent history that have really informed this on a, on, a, on a parallel level? Yeah, so we've looked a lot at what happened in the Ukraine, Crimea. We've looked at what's happened in Syria. Uh, we look at what other potential adversaries are developing, what 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 paths they're going, kind of like I talked about today. We see a, a lot of pro- pro- proliferation of anti-access air denial, A2AD. I mean, that's a trend with all our sort of nation-state competitors. And so we look at recent events, like I said, Ukraine, Crimea, Syria. Uh, we look at what's happening in North Korea. We take a look at what's happening in other parts of the world to see not that we refight those conflicts differently, but what kind of capabilities are we seeing emerging and what areas are they investing in and pursuing because that gives us an idea of their view of what future war is going to look like and how they would thwart the U.S., so we're always looking at the operational environment. If this is, if, if, if a good way of sort of conceptualizing this is um, almost a competition between us and our adversaries in terms of- It always is war. It's just a competition of asymmetries. You know, you had, uh, you know, rocks and then people came up with spears and you had spears came up with bone arrows. Bone arrows came up with armor. Armor, you came up with cannonballs. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's a constant battle of asymmetries. Is that process becoming more rapid? I think it is. It is the the rate of innovation and change is increasing. And that's why one of the biggest differences we're saying, you know what, we can't get into this arms race competition by a better missile, a better that, a better that, because it it, it changes so quickly. That's why we're saying our big advantage could be why we will have great technology is our busy, our ability to employ it and and sequence it into the battle and bring up multiple dilemmas faster than the enemy can come up with solutions to them. If bring, bringing forward, presenting multiple dilemmas to the adversary is sort of the objective across multiple domains, right. um, it's, this is necessarily a joint endeavor. At what yeah. level is that jointness really happening? Where is that enablement between? Yeah, so at multiple levels, I, I will tell you myself and the acting secretary of the Army had breakfast a week or so ago with the secretary of the Air Force and the vice chief of staff of the Air Force and the commander of Air Combat Command. I've met with the secretary of the Navy. We have a joint... Marine Corps Army multi-domain task force that's chaired by the chief of staff of the Army and the commandant of the Marine Corps. We've met multiple times with General Neller, the commandant of the Marine Corps, General Milley, chief of staff of the Army. 
the Army staff, the Marine Corps staff. So at our level, there's you know quite a bit. Again, in the conceptual phase, talking, what does this mean? <clears throat> how does this impact people looking at their future programs? The Air Force is looking at how they replace the capability of J Stars, and so. To their credit, they came to us and said, you know what, we want to look at the requirement for JSTARs in a multi-domain environment. It's not just one capability, it's how do you provide ISR, cyber electronic warfare, ground, air, et cetera. So it's also helping inform other services as they are looking at modernization, how do they deal with the concept that we're coming up with. And then at the lower level, there's a series of working groups of colonels and lieutenant colonels working through some more of these details about what does a network look like? What would that really be? The battlefield framework, et cetera. So I think it has started at the top at the four-star secretary level. And I think at our level, we kind of put the broad objectives on the map and where we want to go. And then we turn over to the majors and lieutenant colonels and colonels and various and say, okay, work through some of the details of this battlefield framework, for instance. So you put a lot of field rights work in that. Hey, think through this network aspect of it. So it's, it occurs at multiple levels, but big change like this usually starts from the top. It's informed from the bottom. We've got a lot of you know, great insights that we've gained in Iraq and, and Afghanistan already. And again, we've done studies in Ukraine and other places like that. So it's informed from the bottom up, but I think the big guidance and the vision comes from the top down. Is it going to, if we project forward 20 or 30 years and see this in implemented, is it going to change the way, say, company-grade officers are operating the battlefield? Are they going to be required to at least have some familiarity with the what power can be brought to bear? In other yeah, companies? definitely. So uh, I, had a, I was meeting with uh, our Army cyber folks yesterday morning, and, and they're talking about how do we train and develop our cyber warriors, meta cadet today that is commissioned cyber branch. But I, I was telling this senior, the general officer of cybers and, and the cyber center of excellence in the Army is down at Fort Gordon. I said, you, you can't just focus on the cyber guy and make sure he or she knows how to, you know, traverse a network and get in there. What you've also got to figure out is how, what do non-cyber people need to know about cyber? So I'm a mechanized infantry armor guy, but I know a lot about artillery. Okay, I know a lot about intelligence preparation in the battlefield. I know a lot about sustainment because I've had to bring all those things to bear. So I, when I went to the infantry advanced course, we had blocks of instruction on logistics. We had blocks of instructions on intelligence preparation in the battlefield. We had blocks of instructions on synchronizing fire and maneuver. So that's going to be the same thing with cyber. So what do our infantry and armor guys need to know about cyber? Well, they might not be the experts, but they have to know what it brings to the battlefield how do you plan for it? How do you include it in the overall operational scheme? How do you leverage its effects, et cetera? It's just, you know, the, the infantry guy is going to have to know as much about cyber as he does artillery. In, uh, in sort of the, in the startup community, it'll talk about unfair advantages. What's a company's unfair advantage? Um, do, you, do you think at all about that? What is the U.S. Army's unfair advantage that makes, that makes it say special and yeah. how MDB might uh, best leverage those, those advantages? In many ways, this was designed to leverage the, if you want to say the American way of war and American culture and our army. So like I said before, so we want to maneuver between domains. Maneuver is a very difficult thing to do because you're taking all elements of combat power, you're maneuvering them through to get to a position advantage. Not outnumber or out firepower, but out maneuver, which means you are out deciding and out acting. Maybe not out ranging, but out deciding. That's the power of maneuver. To do that, 
you have to have very well-trained forces. You have to have very disciplined forces. You have to have very well-led forces. I think the U.S. Army's, the U.S. military's asymmetric advantage is we have the best-led, the best-trained, and the best-disciplined forces. We have great technology, but the technology is not going to be the key differential. It's going to be that level of professionalism and the amount that we invest in the soldier. And part of that is our ability to empower them at very low levels to outdecide the enemy. Because outmaneuver means to outdecide. To do that, you have to have a culture of empowerment and trust throughout the chain of command. If you take a look at many of our adversaries and potential adversaries, their culture is centralized control. They, they're not about empowering people. They're about controlling people. So I think our asymmetric, the way that we have an unfair advantage, the more that we empower our people, the better we make our people at deciding and acting better than theirs, that will keep us. Because that is very difficult to acquire. If you have a new technology, okay, it's actually technology is one of our most transferable capabilities. So when I was growing up, if you had the a new tank and you wanted the blueprints for a tank, you'd have to do like a Mission Impossible thing, sneak in somewhere, steal the blueprints and all that. Nowadays, you can steal it on a thumb drive. You, in fact, you could probably get the, unfortunately, probably the plans of the Joint Strike Fighter by hacking into someone's network. So technology is the most transferable of our capabilities. Leadership, discipline, training, you can't hack into that. You can't put it on a thumb drive. You actually have to build that. And I think that is, that, therefore, that, that's like a built-in security mechanism. They can't steal our discipline. They could steal the planes for the tank, but they can't steal our discipline. In many ways, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but PACOM seems to be uh, the place where this seems to make the most sense to roll out soon to test some of the, some of the, the assumptions of the concept, I think. Is that, is that something? Yes, that I don't know works? if it makes the most sense. Actually, I just came back from Europe about a month ago, and we're, we're doing a lot over there. Um, what, what PACOM gives us is we can do it at great distances, and you have, uh, almost, you have all of the domains there. So if you look at UCOM, there isn't so much of a maritime domain. It's kind of a little in the littorals. You kind of have the North Atlantic issue of bringing capacity over. But when you look at the, the Pacific challenge, you have a lot of maritime issues. And, of course, same to do with air. And then, of course, you know all of your threats live on land. So there's a land component, too. So I wouldn't say it's any more or less demanding than the UCOM AO or CENCOM AO, but it, it's unique. And especially so when we're looking, looking at working with maritime forces, we're putting a lot of effort into <coughs> the PACOM AOR because there are so many maritime forces there. Is that, is, that, does, is that the place that over the next however many years that we're going to see some of these assumptions tested? And so what we've tried to do is we conduct uh, exercises and activities all over the world. We are trying to leverage all of those things. So we have a big uh, joint warfighter assessment going on in Europe next summer, 18. So what we what that is a great area for is to do uh, uh, coalition interoperability. So we work with all our NATO allies. They're all already stainags in place. There's NATO handbook. So you have a kind of a ready-made coalition. So we want to take a look at interoperability of our network, interoperability of our digital systems. It's a great venue to do that. So we're putting a lot of effort in the UCOM AOR on that. <clears throat> when we look at the PACOM AOR, we're setting up a multi-domain battle task force that's going to have ability to do anti-access air denial because we see a lot of that going on in the PACOM AOR. 
and how do you interface with the maritime and the air domain over vast distances. So the good thing about trying to leverage what we're doing around the world is each one presents a unique challenge that stresses one part of the domain differently. So it really gives a, the multi-domain concept a good workout. You, you mentioned interoperability with allies. That's it's you know across the .mil PF. If you have if you're working with allies uh, within a coalition and they have the same organization, that makes mm -hmm. it a lot easier. Mm -hmm. If they have the same material and you can provide mm -hmm. replacement parts, that makes it a lot easier. To what extent is it important that they also sort of buy into this concept? Yeah. So people do kind of focus on the material. I get everyone the same rifle. They use the same bullets and all that. I'm I'm not necessarily as concerned with that aspect of it. The first thing to interoperability is you have is the mental aspect. You have to envision the concept similarly, and that was actually the power of airland battle. So the good news is I've spent quite a bit of time in Europe recently. I'll be back there in January talking multi-domain battle, and we have a number of foreign liaison officers over at Tradoc headquarters, and they're all looking at their version of multi-domain battle. So the good news is nobody has pushed back at us. What they're trying to figure out is within their culture, within their organization, how what does it mean to them? And as they look at modernization. So the good news is <clears throat> I've seen lots of people trying to get on board with multi-domain battle. The challenge is they're trying to figure out where they are in their modernization effort. What does it mean to them and, and what do they have to do to change to leverage that capability? There's a famous, uh, and it might be apocryphal, but I think it's useful still um, as kind of a discussion point, quote from World War II, a German officer, I believe, that said that the problem with the Americans is they don't read their own doctrine. Right, right. Um, and I think the essence of that was that they're unpredictable. Unpredictable. They'll, 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 they'll solve the problem whichever way makes right. sense. How do we, as a um, as sort of a, an army that, that runs on right. doctrine, how do we build in that space for flexibility in something like that? Well, in fact, I like to think our doctrine is not confining like that, it's empowering. So what if you look at Mission Command, ADP 6.0, our command philosophy, we say we want empower leaders to seize, retain, and exploit the initiative. I want you to figure out how to exploit the initiative. That's my doctrine. I'm telling you, I, want, I need to empower you to exploit the initiative. So how do you do that? And I want you to exploit it through all domains. I'm not saying the answer is always two up, one back, and go left, go right. I'm, what I'm saying is I want you to figure out how you want to take the initiative. We have to have a dialogue. Then you have to tell me, hey, sir, ma'am, I want to do this, I want to do that. And then I have to, as your higher headquarters, how do I empower that? I need cyber capability, I need this. So our, I think our doctrine has changed in many ways from being prescriptive to descriptive to say, I want to empower you. I want you to exploit the initiative. I, I encourage you to take prudent risk. I want you to take the most risks possible while still making sure it's prudent. And I want to make sure that I'm giving you multiple options. We say we want to give the commander multiple options. So I don't just, it's, uh, it's not like doctrinally there's only one answer. Doctrinally, the answer is there are many answers. That's the new doctrine is that there are many answers. And the more answers you have, the more doctrinally correct your solution is. We, we often ask guests when they're, when they're on the podcast to make kind of uh, one kind of big, bold claim about whatever the theme is. Is there anything um, that, that isn't commonly talked about but that you think is important that, that you would say, hey, this is going to be a feature of the, com or the, of the, of the future battlefield? I think what you're seeing, just as airland battle did when I first came in the Army, airland battle was just coming in as a concept, it dramatically changed the Army. We went from active defense-based Army to a maneuver-based Army. That was, And then, then you had the battlefield framework, close, deep, rear, not just a close fight. We're going to fight throughout the depth of the enemy formation. I think as this matures, and that was a very dramatic change, that we're going from 
a defense-oriented close fight army to an offensive maneuver deep fight army. And that drove the big five, that drove echelon and some command, that drove training leader development, that drove our combat training centers. I think eventually you're going to see that level of change and that <clears throat> what you're going to see is the Army is even going to be more dependent upon joint capabilities than it is now. It's going to, warfare is, is an already inherently joint, but I think you're, right now what we have are stovepipe solutions that we try to synchronize. What we're trying to do is come up with a converged solution from the beginning, not that we have to take like the Army network, the Air Force network, and the Navy's network and plug it together, black boxes, cable, we're going to have one network, and then we all use that. And that's kind of where we're headed to. That you're, what you're going to see is a convergence of capability across domains and services that we actually haven't seen before. So what Air Land Battle did, if you read through 100-5, it talked about synchronizing. Synchronizing a set of federated solutions. Here's an air solution, a land solution, a maneuver solution, a fire solution. Now synchronize them. So that word is used extensively. And we built staffs made to synchronize. For the future, what we're going to say is that's too late. It takes too long to synchronize. The enemy is going to outmaneuver us. They will outdecide us. I have to, from the very beginning, have a converged solution. And now I have to build staffs and services that start from a converged point of view versus a synchronized federated point of view, if that makes sense. Uh, it, it does. I want to ask you just this one last question. Um, and I don't want to put you on the spot with it too much, but I've been in the room several times uh, with you where you've been explaining multi-domain battle and you see a lot of people nodding their heads. And then they leave that room and some of the questions that they had before have kind of crept back into their consciousness yeah. maybe. Um, do we have the necessary buy-in across Army leadership, across the joint leadership, in order to take this from concept to Yeah, so we're getting it. I mean, we have produced doctrine. But, I mean, it's the same thing when we put out 100-5 in the Army. It, it was always an ongoing process. And you get <clears throat> new commanders and, and new lieutenants, et cetera. So it's not, it's not digital and it's not um, finite. It's just a constant process. And you get a new crop of majors at Command General Staff College, a bunch of lieutenants coming out of West Point. And, and then we'll improve it and you adapt to it. So it's an evolution, not a revolution. Okay, well, General Perkins, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for sitting down and, and, and sharing some of your thoughts on this. Yeah, my pleasure. And I'm, I'm glad I had the chance to add some additional fidelity to what we're trying to do, at least from a conceptual point of view. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. Before you go, if you have any feedback about our podcast, please get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. And if you like what you hear, we'd love it if you take just a few seconds and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Thanks again.